Warning, this podcast is intended for mature audiences only. It contains adult material, discussion of disturbing topics, and adult language. It is for educational purposes only and is not intended to glorify criminals. All information is from public sources. Finally, a pug lives here and sometimes he will give his unsolicited opinion that I'm not able to edit out. Hello, class. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your Professor Debbie. How's everybody this week? Before we start, or before we finish wrapping this up on Doug and Carol, I have a couple announcements. I'm at over 6,000 downloads, which is really amazing. It seems like just a couple months ago, I was at 1,000. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody all around the world for listening to me. And it means so much. I've gotten some compliments on social media, and it, it's such a big deal. It really is. You can't even imagine. I'm going to start a Patreon soon. I'm just thinking of what exactly I'm going to offer in my in the different tiers. And if you have any suggestions, like anything in particular you would like to see, let me know. There's definitely going to be extra content. And these are the ideas that I have right now. And like I said, if you'd like to see something else or something different, let me know. I'm thinking of having some mini episodes where it's just me talking just about anything. I guess maybe trying to be funny or talking about my life. Um, If you think you would like that or you think that's really stupid, let me know. I'm thinking of some mini episodes and those would either be short lessons, like on some very particular aspect of criminology or the criminal justice system that that wouldn't warrant a whole episode, and or something spooky or maybe like a dark history, because I I really like history, as I've said before. I, I really like dark history. So just toss your ideas my way. And I did some, made some changes in the studio. I took Leo out because somebody kept getting in his cage and he's down on the kitchen table now. It's okay. I don't cook and I don't eat down there, so it doesn't matter. I have gotten some positive comments on the audio quality. Did a really simple trick. I didn't even even think it was going to work, but I can't afford... Do you ever see a picture of somebody's recording studio and they have those sound absorbing towels that are like all over their walls or whatever they're in? And I can't afford stuff like that. So I did the poor man's version of a sound absorbing towel. And uh, maybe I'll take a picture of it and put it on my social media. But it seems to be working. And I would like to finish wrapping this up in one episode. I know I say that a lot. It's like famous last words. Sometimes I tend to get long-winded. I find myself like fascinating myself on a particular point or topic that I want to make and I can't shut up about it. And there's nobody here to tell me shut up, so I just keep going on. But anyway, when we left Carol and Doug, it was June of 1980, and he had just killed Marnette Comer. And I mistakenly told Jens that her body wasn't found till July or August. It was found earlier. It was July, but I don't know of, I can't find the exact date. But anyway, I, I always try to put together a timeline 
with cases. I try to be as accurate as I can, but her body was found earlier. She was still the first person killed and the last one found. So, let's tell a little story like the Brady Bunch. There was a woman named Janet Chandler. She had three daughters, Cindy, Michelle, and Jenny. She married a dude named Andy Morano, and he had two daughters, Gina and Judy. So, that's five girls now they have. And they, unlike the Brady Bunch and most people on TV, as most, I think they, they call them blended families is the term. They're not real happy together. They lived in Huntington Beach, California, the family did. And they did fun family things. They went to the beach a lot, which, of course, if you live in California, you probably do. Cindy was uh, in a choir, and she would sing at Disneyland, which is really cool. Gina was a year younger than Cindy. She was a straight-A student. She was on the swim team. Out of all of the kids, Cindy and Gina were the closest. They were like always together. And I hate to use this phrase because it's it's so overused. When I was doing pre-sentence reports, I would interview the defendant's family. And I would say, tell me about your son or daughter and whatever. And I think it's just natural like denial of a parent that their child has done something bad or wrong. They always want to blame it on somebody else. And they say, well, I didn't raise him that way. He was always a good kid until he fell in with the wrong crowd. And I heard it all the time, the wrong crowd. So anyway, to borrow that phrase, Cindy, the older of the two stepsisters, fell in with the wrong crowd. And Gina, who kind of, um, I guess, kind of idolized Cindy. She was a year older and Cindy was beautiful and I guess she thought she was like glamorous. She wanted to be like her. Gina started following in Cindy's footsteps and she did whatever Cindy did. Well, Cindy was 16, Gina was 15, and Cindy decided that she would like to run away and go down to LA and experience the glamour of, you know, the big city, Sunset Boulevard and such, which of course is attractive to so many people. And Gina thought that this seemed like a good idea to her. She didn't want to be left out. So the two used to sneak out, climb out the window all the time. And they would go and uh, they would get into like teenage trouble, like smoking and drinking, stuff like that. I think maybe find some parties. Well, anyway, on the night of June 11th, they ran away. And sadly, they ran into Doug. And I think we know how this story is going to end. Now, according to what Doug told Carol the next day, and plus what she had heard on the news, he told her that he was driving down Sunset Boulevard, as he did the previous afternoon, with his gun in the pocket of the door, you know, that uh, pouch in the, door, in the car door that you could put stuff in. Remember who else used to cruise around with the gun in the door pocket? Lonnie Franklin, remember the grim sleeper? Well, he sees Cindy and Gina sitting on a bus bench, and he's attracted to Cindy. He likes blondes. So he, he stops, and he tries to get her to come over, and they talk, and they're like, well, you know, we're not going anywhere without the other one. So Cindy got in and sat next to Doug, and Gina, who he referred to as a, quote, ugly mutt, like he has any room to talk, 
was on the other side of her. And he talked to them and they said that they had been to a party at Rod Stewart's house. Whether this is true or not, we don't know. But they end up in a parking lot. And he made Cindy fillet him. And he told Gina to look away. Because, you know, he wanted some privacy, I guess. So she looks out the window. Unfortunately for Cindy, she apparently wasn't doing a good enough job to, you know, to him. He gets mad, so he pulls out the gun, and Gina still has her head turned, and he shoots Gina in the head. So Cindy, of course, hears the commotion, puts her head up, so he shoots her in the head also. The girls are still alive. He ends up shooting both of them another time. Then he drove to a rental garage, and I can't figure out why he had a rental garage, but he did. He drags them into the garage, and there's they're bleeding. There's blood all over the floor, all over the place. He put them on a bed in the corner. Uh, that's also bizarre. Why do you have a bed in the corner of the rental garage? But you never know with Doug. So he undressed them and decides that he's going to have some fun with their bodies. They're dead now. He puts them in a 69 position, on, you know, with each other. He... Um, rapes Cindy, or her corpse, and sodomized Gina. He left here about 8 o'clock, and he goes to Lydia. The Remember, he's still going back and forth between girlfriends. He goes to her house. He borrows her Polaroid camera. He goes back to the garage and takes pictures of Cindy and Gina, the way they're posed. Wraps them in a blanket, puts them in the car, then uh, off the highway by the Forest Lawn Cemetery thumps him down the hill. Then he goes back to sleep at Lydia's. So the next afternoon, the, the two girls are found. By now, their parents had reported them missing. The autopsy showed that Cindy had been shot in the head and chest. She was dead about 12 hours before she was found. Gina had two bullets in her head, and they were partially nude. And they also, because of the heat... You know, it's June, it's Los Angeles. They're bloated already. If you heard my body farm episode a couple episodes ago, you'll know what the uh, bloating is and what it looks like and smells like, and they probably didn't smell very good. So Carol hears this from Doug. She sees on the news about the, the murder girls that were found. And in the car, she finds a duffel bag with clothes, bloody clothes and bloody paper towels. And this is very interesting and very important, too. This is like what you call a decision point. She decided that because Doug had recently been talking a lot about killing people, that if she learns that he had killed somebody, that she would stand by him. So she goes to the laundromat and she washes the clothes. And like I said, the reason this is important is because Carol found evidence of that her boyfriend most likely killed somebody, and she had to make a decision. Is she going to ignore it? Is she going to turn him in? Is she going to do the right thing and go far away from him? But she decides that if he did kill somebody, she's going to stick with him. So she logically thought this out and made this decision so that this is very important saturday evening carol goes to a phone booth those were these things they had back in 1980 these uh glass booths out in public that you would go in 
And back in 1980, I think it only cost a dime. Believe it or not, I know this is hard to believe, but later on, it actually cost a quarter. And I know I'm really making myself old, but if you were going out somewhere, your parents would say, take a dime in case you need to make a phone call. Or you would do like me and make the collect, make a collect call because you were too cheap. So Carol calls the Van Nuys police. This didn't happen in Van Nuys, but she didn't know any better. And her conversation is really intriguing. She says she has information on this homicide. She calls herself Betsy, then she calls herself Claudia. And she says, quote, what I'm trying to do is ascertain whether or not the individual I know who happens to be my lover did in fact do this. He said he did, end quote. And she told the officer uh, on the other end of the line that previously Doug had come home with bloody clothes and knife. And he supposedly told her that he had been killing people. According to Carol's story, Doug told her that Cindy gave him a lousy blowjob and had a bad attitude, and this made him mad enough to kill her. So she was trying to pump them for information. And she said, quote, well, then I can't give you any more. You have to understand this. Either I know the killer, in which case I may be the next one on his list. Otherwise, if he's on a pipe dream and he heard a news break or something and he decided to roll in the glory of that, then there's no point in carrying this on anymore. End quote. Now that's kind of a rambling, bizarre statement, but unfortunately the switchboard cut them off and she didn't call back. So I've heard it reported before that Carol was trying to tell on Doug, trying to alert the authorities. But the more I read the conversation, the more I think that she is trying to find out what they know. She's trying to verify whether or not he actually did kill these girls. Like, she's learned by now that everything he says has to be taken with a big grain of salt. She sees the bloody stuff. He's talked about murder. She thinks, well, maybe he did, but I really want to know. So maybe the police will let, let me know. And I, I think that by making this call, she was simply on her own fishing expedition. And she was not trying to do a public service, if you know what I'm, what I'm saying. She's decided at this point that she's going to be Bonnie to his Clyde. Like, you know, I'm in this. So on Sunday, which would be the next day, Doug took Carol for a drive. And he showed her the place where he dumped Cindy and Gina. And he didn't know people's names. He didn't. Sometimes he asked them for their name. Sometimes he didn't. But he would call them by, like, streets or landmarks where he dumped them or something. Called them the twins, which is kind of understandable. And the gun was laying on the seat between them. And he said, quote, You think I'm going to kill you, don't you, Carol? End quote. And she said, quote, well, the thought has crossed my mind. And he said, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. At least not now. Okay. And he said, if he had to kill her, though, he wouldn't dump her, but he'd make sure she got a decent burial because he's just such a nice guy. Then he showed her where he picked up Marnette Comer, who he described as, quote, a little snot. He referred to her as Foothill because he dumped her near Foothill Boulevard. 
So this launched a period during which all they talked about was murder and death. Doug told Carol that before Cindy and Gina, he killed almost 50 people, which was absolutely ridiculous. All information points to Mornette Comer as being the first person he ever actually killed. We know he tried to kill that Charlene, remember the one he fought with and through he she jumped out of the car. He said his goal was to kill a hundred. And Carol made the observation to somebody later that he had no remorse or shame. And she said to him, quote, you're a sociopath. And I find this noteworthy because this was 1980, remember? And that word wasn't in really wide use, especially among like lay people, people who weren't like psychologists and in the mental health and, and medical field. So for her to use that word, um, that's just remarkable. I mean, I just found that, you know, kind of remarkable. So on June 20th, they both go out together and they're they're going to look for another sex worker to pick up. They go to Highland Avenue at like late, late night in Hollywood and they pick up a girl. Well, they find a girl and Doug calls out the window, Miss, she ignores him, which you can't blame her. And then he uses his famous line, my wife doesn't like to give blowjobs and I really could use one. Would you mind? So she gets in the car. She says her name's Kathy. Carol's in the back seat holding the gun in her purse. And she said, my name's Barbara. And they had a prearranged code phase phrase. If Carol wanted to shoot this one, she would use the phrase, boy, am I having a blast. So they go to a parking lot. Kathy starts um, servicing Doug. He's not enjoying himself for whatever reason. And he looks at Carol, you know, in the rearview mirror. And he makes, reaches back and wiggles his fingers like in that motion, like, gimme, like, gimme the gun. So she hands it to him the wrong way. Not real sure what the wrong way was. But some way it was awkward in his hand. And he had to shoot her left-handed. So... She's not dead. She's dying. Doug said that he was shocked at how calm Carol was. She wasn't, like, freaking out or, you know, upset. Um, uh, Kathy, if that was her name, we don't know. Her head was on Carol. She's bleeding all over. Doug orders her strip her. So as he drives away, Carol's wrestling with this dying girl trying to get her clothes off. They go down a dirt road, like, away from civilization, kind of in the, I don't want to say country, but, you know, there's like bushes and grass and stuff. So they pull her out of the car, they drag her, and they leave her laying in bushes. This is really, I mean, this is all fucked up, but this particular item. The next day, Doug goes and gets Lydia, that's his other girlfriend, 11-year-old son, and Carol, and they go to the, wash the car, which has blood in it. And he told the kid that the blood was from a cat that he hit. I mean, this is so strange. Like, let me go with the girlfriend who I committed a murder with to my other girlfriend's apartment. Take her son to go wash the car of the bloodstains of the murder victim that I killed with the other girlfriend. It's like, what? This story makes your head spin. (laughs) It's, It's just 
so weird. All of it. So Carol puts a deposit on an apartment on West Verdugo Avenue in Burbank. It's close to the Jurgens plant, you know, the soap plant. Doug is still working there. I think this is like the longest he's kept a job. So on the night of June 20th, Doug goes out cruising again. And he sees three girls standing on the street. There's one black girl. He didn't want her because... Um, not only is he a serial killer, he's a racist too. The other one was a skinny blonde and the other one was a, what he called a chubby blonde. He couldn't get any of them alone, which is what he wanted. So he drove around a little bit, came back. Now there's only one of them. And this was the thin blonde in the pink. So he gave his famous line, Hey, my wife doesn't give blood jobs. Would you help me out? Blah, blah, blah. So she gets in the car and she's 20 year old Exie Wilson from Little Rock, Arkansas. So he drives around looking for a parking lot and Exie put her head in his lap and started uh, going to it. And Doug later said there was something vulgar about her. And well, I guess he didn't like this. So while she was um, pleasuring him, he shot her in the head. And as she died, um, her teeth clamped down and they happened to be around his penis when this happened. Well, this hurt. So Doug was mad. He's hollering and screaming, which he totally deserved, of course. He pulls into the parking lot of the Studio City Sizzler restaurant. I think it's like a steak restaurant. And Carol had made up something called a kill bag for him to take out with him. And it had gloves, another knife, paper towels, and cleanser. And she had this idea that he make each more killing more gruesome. So the police will be looking for a psycho and not somebody sane like Doug. Which is really quite hilarious because Doug is a psycho. But this gives us a really interesting look into Carol's brain. First of all, she's really now becoming more involved in the killing. She wants to participate more. She made him the kill kit and she had a suggestion of, you know, make them more gruesome or disturbing. So he drags Axie out of the car and takes off her clothes. He took a green ring from her. He cut her head off with one of his knives. Not exactly sure why. I don't know if he was mad at her because she bit his, him in the dick or he w was following Carol's idea of make them the killings look more gruesome. Could be either. But he put her head in a plastic bag, put it on the back seat of the car, and left her headless body laying there in the parking lot. He got the thought that maybe the other girls had seen him, maybe could identify him, so he thought maybe he should go back, try to pick up at least one of them, get rid of them. So he goes back and the other blonde, the one he called Tubby, was there. So she got in. She was dressed nice in a jacket and a red and black dress. And he was totally un uninterested in sex with her. All he wanted to do was eliminate a possible witness. And it wasn't, it's interesting, he later said that she was too fat for him to be interested in sex with. And um, the reason I find this interesting is, have you seen Carol? I assume you've seen pictures of her by now. And then he had the, uh, I think it was Daphne, the 300-pound girlfriend that wouldn't fit in the tub. Um, yeah, so what's this all about? And I'm think I have an idea. I'm thinking that he's not sexually aroused by what he considers 
fat or tubby or chubby women, but that he likes them, ones like Carol and the, the other one, because he feels that they see themselves as unattractive and have low self-esteem and they will be more likely to let him leech onto them and be a parasite. So that's just my guess. Now, ironically, with her friend's head in the back of the car, unbeknownst to her, her name was Karen Jones, by the way, and she also came from Little Rock, Arkansas. Doug drives to another parking lot. Oh, this actually wasn't a parking lot. It was just kind of the street near Burbank Studios. Stopped. No uh, pretense about, would you give me a blowjob or any of that? Just took the gun out. Karen screamed. So all these dogs around started barking. He's like, oh shit, I better hurry up. So he shot her in the left temple. He ripped her earrings out of her ears stole the cash that she had on her, and just opened the car door and shoved her into the street. She landed with her head against the curb. When the police first found her body, they didn't think that she was a sex worker because she was dressed nice. But as it turns out, she was. She had come from Little Rock with her friend Exy and three other girls, and they all had a pimp named Derek. And Derek decided that he wanted to bring his um, employees to Los Angeles, and they had just gotten there. So that's how they ended up in Los Angeles. So he goes to the new apartment, he carries her head in the bag in with him, and uh, told Carol, you know, what had, what had just happened about killing the, the two of them. And Carol later said that she felt an extraordinary psychological intimacy with Doug when he was telling her about these latest murders, and that this was the moment of deepest rapport that she had ever felt with him. This is very significant. At first, he wouldn't let her see the head. It was in the freezer. He said, no, it's too gross. Carol's like, oh, come on, I'm a nurse. You know, I've seen gross things. Let me see it. Well, he did take it out, and he swung it around by the hair, and then he took it in the shower with him, play with. And not like a rubber duck, but use your imagination. And um, yeah, like like that. So Carol went and bought a box, like a wooden, um, it looks like a treasure chest thing they were going to put her head in. And she wanted her to look nice for, you know, her head being discovered. So she sat and put makeup on her head. So once Exy had makeup on, they wrapped her in um, a pair of jeans and Marnette Comer's t-shirt. Remember her? That was the first girl that was killed. And put this stuff in the box. They put it in an alley behind Hawthorne Street. And about 1 a.m. on June 26th, a guy named Jonathan parks and goes into his apartment. He's like, oh, what's this? A box. Of course, he opens it out of curiosity. And he, I imagine he got quite an unpleasant surprise. Now, the news was all over, and they were calling um, Carol and Doug, although they, they had no idea that there were two in them, the Sunset Strip Slayer or the Sunset Strip Killer, and the newspapers and TV news were full of the Sunset Strip murder victims. So everybody was real careful, and Doug and Carol couldn't get any working girls to get into the car with them, which of course is good. Now Carol's moved into her new apartment and Doug kind of moved in there, but he kept his own bedroom with a cot and a pile of 
clothes, some of which were from the victims. But he still went and saw Lydia. And very bizarrely, he still brought other women to Carol's. And this story, it's like when you, when you think you've seen the most bizarre thing, they just keep topping themselves. He would just bring other women into Carol's apartment. Like, hey, can I have sex with this girl on your bed? Sure, go ahead. Oh, God. Okay. Now, speaking of disturbing behavior, we're going we're gonna to talk about Teresa. You know, that's the 11-year-old girl from the other that they met at the other apartment. In the beginning, be, meaning before they started molesting her, Teresa said that she felt like Doug's toy. She would sleep there overnight. He gave her his, his teddy bear named Mozart, which would be really cute that a grown man has a teddy bear named Mozart, except for the fact that said man is a serial killer and sex offender and is giving the bear to his intended victim to sleep with. They would talk about things like school, Doug's childhood. He told Teresa that a maid seduced him when he was 16, which given his history, we can't really believe. He had a thing for Teresa's mother, Jacqueline, and he was always telling Teresa to get him a pair of her underwear. And Teresa said that's gross, which it is. And Doug has this this real serious underwear fetish. So eventually he touched her, you know, in her, what she called her private part. And he said, don't tell Carol. And I'm like, where are these girls' parents while all this is going on? Well, it turns out her parents had divorced when she was a baby. Then her mother married some other dude. And uh, Teresa loved the stepdad. And she would go over to see him still. Be, you know, she still liked him. And one time she went over to his house. And she saw him, like, running behind the house to hide. And another woman who she didn't know came to the door and said, Go away. You're not his little girl anymore. He has a new family now, so don't come back. Oh, my God. This poor girl. She had a terrible life. And recently, her mother had been in the hospital and was supposedly distracted by problems with the boyfriend. And actually, Jacqueline, Teresa's mother, had been questioned by authorities in the past about possible child abuse because... Teresa had a lot of accidents, like falling off her bike and, and stuff like that, and I guess had several trips to the emergency room, like just enough to raise somebody's suspicions. So I still can't figure out, okay, they're at, when they first meet, they live in the same apartment complex, so it's not too strange. Um, we know Teresa played with Carol's kids, and um, I guess if she wants to befriend them or she's hanging out over there. It's not too odd. But now they live someplace different and they they would like go get her. Well, Doug would go get her, take her to stuff like McDonald's and fast food, whatever she wanted, and bring her to their apartment for like sleepovers. And did her mother know where she was going? Did she think it was strange that her 11-year-old daughter was friends with a a couple in their 30s and they had sleepovers. I mean, what is this Michael Jackson shit going on? You know, if I told my mother when I was 11, oh, I have a friend, he's 32, and uh, she'd be like, no, you don't. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. 
this is one of those instances in this case where it's just like, what the fuck, you know? And it, it turns out that Teresa had been molested before by a family friend. And unfortunately, this was still ongoing. And it made me wonder if she didn't give out some kind of vibe or behave in some certain way that Doug picked up on. You know, is that a thing? So I, I did a little bit of digging and I found out it, it sort of is. I heard that kids who are molested or abused may exhibit overly sexualized behavior or use sexual language. And remember the, the very first time that Carol met Teresa, Teresa told Dirty Joke. Could that possibly have had something to do with it? Did Carol think, um, well, and I have no idea what the joke was, so I can't make a judgment. Um, you know, I'm really curious about it. Did Carol think, oh, wow, that little girl's quite advanced. I wonder where she got that, those words or she heard that or whatever and maybe told Doug and I mean, I, I just have no idea. And there are no other children besides Teresa mentioned in Doug's life story. She seems to be the only one that he ever pursued or abused. And that would make him what they call a non-exclusive pedophile. You know, a pedophile is defined as somebody with a sexual interest in children who have not yet reached puberty. If you have an interest in kids who are between puberty and the age of consent, say maybe like 16, you're called a hebophile. We don't know 11. That's kind of like in between. We don't know if Teresa had reached puberty. Yeah, I mean, either way, it's disgusting and wrong. But if you're a non-exclusive pedophile, it means in addition to being sexually attracted to adults, you're also sexually attracted to children. If you're an exclusive pedophile, I think you can fill in the blank. It means you're only attracted to children. So I'm sure if anybody ever came out and asked Doug about, well, somebody did. After his arrest and conviction, Doug actually went on the record, is quoted as saying that Teresa seduced him. And that's a, a quote right out of his mouth. So there's no denying that. And that is very typical of pedophiles. I've had, I've talked to a lot of them and they will look right at you and they'll say that the kid came onto them. Like they really believe this. So as far as I'm aware, the molestation abuse of Teresa is the only, um, what or one of the few crimes that Doug has ever like actually admitted to. I mean, he said it, that she came onto him, it wasn't his fault. But just by phrasing it that way, he's pretty much admitting to it. Now, Teresa saw Carol as like a grown-up friend. She liked to hang around there. She thought she was cool. Carol taught her how to cook and crochet, and she would just like hang around there and eat and I guess watch TV with them, have sleepovers, which is extremely disturbing. And she's was uh, very smart, very perceptive for her age. And she sensed that Carol was jealous of her. Now, I know I keep saying this, but um, I'm going to say it again. Shit's about to get real bad. So if uh, 
this is all about Teresa. So if you're sensitive or I don't blame you if you want to jump ship right now, but don't say I didn't warn you. So one of the things Teresa liked to do with Doug was go out cruising to find girls. They would drive down the street in Hollywood looking at the girls and Teresa would say, oh, you know, that one's pretty or how about that one or whatever. He also let her pick out his porn magazines. So they find one, they find a girl sitting on a bench. Doug says, what do you think of her? And Teresa said, she's ugly, but she must do something right to stay in business. I mean, the perception on this little girl, it's, well, I mean, now we know why, but my God, Doug said, how about that one? Teresa said, she's wearing come fuck me shoes. I didn't hear the term come fuck me shoes till I was in college. So Doug decides he's going to pick up a hitchhiker, which in those days there were plenty of. And he told Teresa, when we get her in a car, say something provocative. So they get a girl hitchhiker and she gets in the back seat with Teresa. She smiles at her, you know, like you see a little kid and you give him a smile, like, you know, smile. And I was writing this down and I was laughing. I mean, it's it's terrible, but it is funny. Teresa looked at her and said, nice jugs, babe. And the woman like panicked and ran out of the car. She probably thought, what the fuck was that all about? And Teresa and Doug had a good laugh over that. Doug wanted him, Carol, and Teresa to take a shower together. Carol t- actually told Doug that it was wrong. And he accused her of being jealous. Uh, they did all take a shower together, which is... Uh, and they told Teresa, and I'm not sure if this meant intercourse or the shower or like sex play. I don't know what this referred to, but they told her, if you don't want to do it, it's fine, but we would really like you to. So then at some point, Doug, he got this, uh, one of his wacko ideas. He bought a shotgun and they got a pair of walkie-talkies. And the plan was for him to go into a Mexican bar shoot everybody in there while Carol acted as the lookout outside with her own gun. And of course, they would have the walkie-talkies to communicate. For whatever reason, fortunately, this plan did not come to fruition. Carol still wanted sex with Doug, but he was just simply not interested in her anymore unless another girl or Teresa was involved. He found her to be too clingy, possessive, and jealous. They had a lot of fights. Doug would threaten to leave. Then he had the bright idea to set a false trail for the murders. And if you know anything about Charles Manson and the the murders, remember how he had that idea of Helder Skelter blame it on on black people. Well, apparently Doug must have heard about this idea. He said, let's blame it on a black dude. So he had Carol call the Orange County rape hotline and told whoever answered the phone that her black pimp was the killer. So Doug got mad. He's hollering at her. He's like, you you know, that was a shitty acting job. So then he has the idea of planting a red herring at a murder scene. And for this, he needed a black pubic hair. For this, uh, you don't just walk into Walmart and buy these. So Carol happened to work with a young 
black female at Valley Medical Center where she worked as a nurse. So she actually asked this poor woman for one of her pubic hairs. And she said, I guess before she asked, she said, don't think I'm crazy. And this poor woman was mortified. So of course she told everybody, all the other workers, and everybody avoided her. Like, I think they already thought she was weird. But asking for somebody for a pubic hair is just uh, beyond the, you know, what is acceptable behavior at the workplace. So then Carol called Dick, her ex-husband. This was the only one that was nice to her. Remember, he was the writer. And she told him about the murders and, you know, the, the Doug she was was with Doug, and he was doing this, and she was afraid that he would kill her. Well, of course, Dick told her that she should leave. So then she calls back a few minutes later, and she said, don't listen to what I just said. It, none of that was true. See, I'm writing a story, and I wanted to see if it was believable. And he bought it, because he knew that she had been a writer. So in July, Doug has this friend named Nancy, who's an exotic dancer. She has a fight with her roommate, and she moves in with Doug. She was hanging out with Doug and Carol, and uh, she she's like, "Yuns are both weird." So Doug tells Nancy that he wants to try necrophilia, and um, Carol asks Nancy if you know what you think. Are you interested? Or and Nancy asks Carol, "Well, what do you are you interested?" And Carol's like, um, "Yeah, you know, I'm curious about it." And um, Nancy's probably like, oh my God, these people. So for the past month, Carol had been threatening suicide. Doug told her, go ahead, which, um, take a note, that is not what you tell somebody who says they want to kill themselves. Carol was having extreme mood swings. And I know I said I wasn't going to talk about psychology, but I lied. I'll t talk about that later. And I think this is going to be a four-part episode. So, on July 29th, Carol writes Doug a suicide note. She calls the hospital where she works to say, I'm not coming in today because I'm going to kill myself. And she's in the parking lot of her apartment building. She injects herself with 1,250 units of insulin and 100 milligrams of Librium. And then she takes 100 milligrams worth of Librium pills. Librium was a benzodiazepine, you know, for anxiety. And the reason I say was is because it's not made anymore. And I was just curious as to what that amount would do to somebody, along with the insulin, whether it's a lethal, lethal dose. I'm assuming since Carol was a nurse, she would kind of have an idea. But, well, I, I don't know. So here is, it's not very, very long, but I want to read it to you, the letter that she wrote to Doug. It says, I keep screwing up everything. The man I love can't stand me anymore. He wants to split. I can't let go and he won't let me hold on. What's wrong with me? I screw up everyone I love or whoever cared for me. He says he's not my lover. He's only a roommate. He hasn't touched me in months. I just can't stand it anymore. I deliberately keep him angry or I seem to. I'm really just a klutz. Douglas, I love you. I don't ever wish you harm. If this hurts, I'm sorry. This is your way out. Honey, I just wanted to love you. I didn't expect it back, nor did I ever intend to own you. And since you know I can't lie, 
you know what I was saying was straight up front. It hurts to be in love alone. In the morning, call the police. I'll be in the car parked by the gristmill. No point in spending money on a room. This isn't your fault. There really isn't even enough of me to bother with anyway. The gristmill was a restaurant. And what she did, when she got drowsy, she drove to said restaurant. I have no idea how, but she made it to the restaurant. She passed out and she awoke to the sounds of the ambulance. The next day, she woke up in the hospital and she told whoever was there that she was in love with a maniac, which she wasn't wrong about. So she calls Jack. Remember good old Jack Murray, the, uh... Australian cowboy. He came and brought her home. And guess who he had with him? Nancy, the exotic dancer. Th this is like a sick, bizarre soap opera. So we are going to break for here. This is going to be a four-parter, apparently. I promise we'll wrap it up next episode. And I didn't realize there was so much to say about these two. And I promise, I know I said that before, but for real, we're gonna wrap up the murders next episode and there's more disgusting child molestation i'll give you another trigger warning about that and we're going to talk about the confession just a little bit of their trial because i don't, I don't want to get too deep into that but they are both evaluated by several uh, mental health people and the results i think are just too interesting to keep from you and of course you know i have to do my own analysis because that's why we're here, right? So I will see you next time. Class dismissed.